Um, so a little uh, background, uh, two weeks ago was Reformation Sunday. During that Sunday, uh, we, we kind of looked back at the 500-year anniversary of uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation, seeing that how both the Reformation was something that was really good in the sense that it brought some alignment to the scripture, but it was also something that was really hard and that was also something that was used and abused to kind of do your own thing. And so during that uh, worship service, we both had declaration, but we also had confession and repentance about the fact how oftentimes we take two things that are uh, together in the heart of God, such as grace and truth, and we kind of separate them into separate houses. And we're either on the truth side of things or we're on the grace side of things. And we kind of functionally divorce them when in the heart of God, they're actually married and they're one. And that is a hard tension to live in, you know, at times, especially in the practicality. We can say those things in our minds that, oh, it's always easy to walk in grace and truth hand in hand. And we know that's not always the case, that we need forgiveness. We need wisdom to do that. But we also declare that those things are together in the heart of God, and we don't want to necessarily separate them. So then last week, we started the Drunken Peasant Sermon Series. And this comes from a quote from Martin Luther. And yes. The quote is, human nature is like a drunk peasant. Lift him into the saddle on one side, over he topples on the other side. And maybe some of you have experienced this just in your life of faith, right? Maybe you uh, grew up in a very legalistic uh, uh, portion of the faith. And then all of a sudden there was this great awakening as to what was happening. And then possibly maybe you kind of swung too far over to the other side and um, kind of fell off the horse. And this happens both ways. Um, We tend to be a people that are overreactionary. Well, we know that's not right. So we're going to go ahead and go to the nth degree, the other thing, because obviously that must be the right way to walk in wisdom. And yet Jesus in his teachings and in the teachings of the Old and the New Testament say that there's a better way. Sometimes there's this left and this right that need to be held in tension to walk in wisdom. Other times it's neither this thing on this side or this side, but it's a third way. Uh, In two weeks, uh, Mike and Laura Borden are actually going to be preaching, and they're going to be talking about prayer and how Jesus says in Matthew 6, uh, don't pray like the pagans pray. Don't pray like the hypocrites pray, but rather pray this way, which goes into the Lord's Prayer. So what we're looking uh, in the sermon series is to be sober-minded, is to think about what this idea of being sober-minded is and why is it important. So first, Peter says that being sober-minded is important in at least two way, three ways. One, we can easily set ourselves up for exhaustion if we are not sober-minded, right? We kind of just go, we just kind of react, we do what we think is right without taking the time to actually pray or to think or to reflect in community. And then our lives kind of get out of control and they go wacky and we're like, how did I get here? Well, maybe it's because we weren't sober-minded in the midst of it. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, thank you, seeking someone to devour. So being sober-minded helps to protect us from being erratic and uh, functioning in exhaustion rather than in work and rest. Also, you'll have to excuse my voice. I'm going through my yearly puberty thing, um, and so I have a bunch of junk that will make my voice do different things. I also hope not to spit on any of you in the front row this morning. So that's one reason we need to consider why this being sober-minded is important. Second reason, our prayer life can become disjointed if we are not sober-minded. Our prayer life can become disjointed if we are not sober-minded. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly 
since love covers a multitude of sin. And then the third reason why it's important for us to be sober-minded, being sober-minded helps us to set our hope fully on Jesus Christ rather than hoping in lesser things that will ultimately disappoint. And this is kind of the, the application of today's message, keeping our hope fully on Jesus Christ and the hope of his grace that is to be revealed to us. Last week, um, Josh started with um, the idea of Peter, the idea of Peter having this all-or-nothing mentality and how we act or react in the midst of situations that we're in. Today, uh, we're going to talk about the inclusive exclusivity of the kingdom of God. The inclusive exclusivity of the kingdom of God. And we're going to do that through two stories. One, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, which is going to be an axe. And also, we're going to look at what the scripture says, those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so today is going to be very sober-minded. Here at Cornerstone, we believe that identity is the thrust of the Christian life. But connected to that identity, it's not that we are Christians and then we get to do and say whatever we think we should do and say. Part of following Christ and of following Jesus is to say, oh, he is the rabbi. He is the king. He is the savior. What does he have to say into my life and into the life of the community. Even if we don't understand it at times, why would you ask us to do that? Why would you not ask us to do this other thing? We want to be sober-minded in putting Christ in his rightful place and also not having these uh, judgments that are based in ourselves that say, well, you're included in the kingdom of God, but you're not included in the kingdom of God. Or it's okay that you're here, but it's not okay that you're here. And so we're going to look at this inclusive part of the gospel and also this exclusive part of the gospel and with a sober mind, consider what the scripture is saying. Make sense? Yes? Great. As always, um, I like to have some conversation uh, as part of the sermon stuff. If you want to uh, open up first to Acts chapter 8 to look at the first story. But before we go into there, I want you to turn around to one or two people that you are close to, and I want you to discuss this first question. When you hear the word inclusive, what first comes to your mind? When you hear the word inclusive, what first comes to your mind? In what context would you consider being inclusive a positive thing? And then in what context would you consider it a negative trait? Okay? Have fun. Two minutes. What comes to mind? Turn to somebody around you and talk about that. On the back of your bulletin are some quotes from the sermon, or sermon thoughts, If you want to turn around, I'm going to read the the first one up there. So the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch graphically demonstrates the inclusiveness of the gospel. No apparent obstacle, whether physical defect, race, or geographical remoteness, can place a person beyond the saving call of the good news. So we're in uh, Acts chapter 8, and we're starting in verse 26 to hear what the scripture has to say to us in this story. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south around noon to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all of her treasure. So this is the full, the first fully Gentile conversion in the book of Acts meaning that there's no um, 
uh, Jewish heritage necessarily linked to the bloodline of this Ethiopian. And what we see in uh, Acts 1 and 2 is Jesus commissioning the apostles and the disciples and the, and the church to go and be witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and where else? What was that? To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. And so this is the first fully, so, um, fully Gentile uh, convert. So Philip is in Samaria. In Samaria, if you remember from previous sermons, the Samaritans were kind of half-bloods. They were part Jewish, but also had uh, pagan, uh, other cultural blood mixed in with them. And so they weren't purely, quote-unquote, purely Jewish people. And so there's this progression where the gospel goes out first to the Jews and then to the Samaritans, who are kind of the, the in-between. And now it's going to the ends of the, of, of the earth, to those that are completely Gentile, those that are completely outside of the Jewish heritage and tradition. And uh, this is an interesting call that God brings to Philip because he's in a city. He's in Philadelphia. He's, uh, there's these things going on. There's healings happening. And all of a sudden, what does God say? He says, Philip, I want you to leave the multitude of people here and the hustle and bustle of today, and I want you to go into this desert place. I want you to leave the multitude, and I want you to go find this one person. I want you to go find this one person. And who does this one person end up being? He ends up being an Ethiopian, so he's a foreigner. Um, and the really cool thing about this, just from a cultural standpoint, in the mindset of first uh, century Judaism or even Roman uh, mythology, I'll, I'll say it that way, that Ethiopia had this certain title and it was called the land that was at the end of the earth, which is really interesting considering like, hey, now obviously that wasn't the end of the earth, but from a cultural standpoint, it's almost like uh, we're doing what Christ said to do, Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth, as in Ethiopia. And so this call to take the gospel to all people is going out, and it's coming to this Ethiopian. So he's a foreigner. Um, he's also a eunuch. Now, a eunuch in uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern times could be two, one of two things. One, you could be born a eunuch. What does that mean? That means that your uh, reproductive parts or your genitalia, uh, there was something abnormal about that from birth, from birth. You could be classified as a eunuch from birth in that sense. More than likely, in the case of the Ethiopian, what happened is that the Ethiopian originally was a slave of some kind. And it was known in uh, other cultures outside of uh, Judaism and the Hebraic culture that they would take their young boys and they would castrate them. And then they would become a eunuch. And then those people would be in charge of many different court official things. Specifically, they would be in charge of treasuries, which this eunuch was in charge of. But also at the time, they might be in charge of the king's harem, right? So the harem was uh, the ladies um, that were being uh, usually against their will, that were part of the king's um, entourage, and they were the ones that uh, pleased the king, so to say. And so uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, what they wanted is that they wanted uh, a man to oversee it, but that they didn't want the man to get... Um, uh, mixed up with the harem. And so what did they do? They castrated the man so that his temptation to do so would be less. Um, that, that stuff wouldn't necessarily be on the top of his mind, so to speak. So that's kind of the, the background of it. So this Ethiopian is a foreigner and a eunuch. Uh, again, uh, also he's a court official, which means that he was a wealthy man. As we're going to see, he's riding in a cart or in a chariot. 
It's not like everybody and their mother had a chariot back then. And he was uh, going from Ethiopia, uh, northern Sudan, into Jerusalem. Also, we're going to see that he was reading the scripture. Now, while we might have something here where we're like, oh, everybody here has a Bible or they have 2,700 Bible translations on their phone. Back then, it wasn't just like you whipped out a scroll. It wasn't like Terry and Joy and Toby had their own scrolls tucked away. Those things were pricey and they were not in mass supply. So this is a very high-ranking official that the gospel is going to. He's also an, uh, a foreigner, an Ethiopian, and he's also a eunuch, which would have come with some kind of cultural uh, stigmas about who he was. So next, verses uh, 27b to 31. So he, the Ethiopian, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So here, um, uh, Philip hears, I'm assuming that the chariot wasn't going fast, that Philip actually heard him. Otherwise, maybe Philip is like a marathon runner, like Matt or something and he could hear what was being said as he's running up next to him. Um, But whatever the case, he hears him reading out loud, which is how the ancient Near Easterns, if you could read, you would read. So he wouldn't have been reading to himself, even in the chariot. If he was reading something, he would have been saying it out loud. This gets the ears of Philip. And Philip's like, hey, do you you know what you're actually reading about? And the the Ethiopian's like, no, I don't. Come up, and uh, can you kind of teach me what this is actually saying. Interesting thing here. Obviously, the text doesn't say everything. I I wondered how Philip knew the Ethiopian was a eunuch, right? It's not like that's something that comes up in conversation a lot or you have a name tag on. Um, It's not like, you know, it's not an external, necessarily an external thing. So there was definitely other conversation that was happening during this of them getting to know one another uh, that is reported in kind of the details of the story. But it's also, how did he know he was a a eunuch. Was that part of his, I'm an Ethiopian, oh, and I was castrated as a young boy, and those kind of things. I don't know. But somehow um, it plays into the importance of this story. So uh, verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that the Ethiopian was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or is it about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And so at the, this right moment, um, the, the, the Ethiopian is reading this thing about Jesus in the Old Testament. And he's thinking, who is this person? Is it Isaiah that's writing this? Is it some other servant? Is it the people of Israel who the servant refers to uh, in Isaiah? Or is it a specific person that is being talked about here? 
And so he asks Philip, and, and then Philip, what does Philip do? He kind of unfolds the story of Scripture about how Jesus voluntarily suffered on our behalf, how he bore the sins of others, um, though he himself was not guilty, and how he didn't open his mouth in retribution or defense. And then there's this interesting line at the end of that Isaiah passage, who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth. And I feel, and I don't know this, this is speculation, that I feel like in that part, the Ethiopian, specifically the eunuch part of him, kind of had some kind of camaraderie with this passage, right? Because what this passage, one of the ways you can think about it is like, did this servant of the Lord that was a, 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 sleep, a sheep that was led to the slaughter, did this person have any kind of lineage? And remember, this is first century uh, Roman um, Jewish thinking. Like, family was super important. Leaving a heritage was super important. And could the eunuch have kids? The answer is no. And so even though it's not the same thing, there was kind of maybe this camaraderie as he's reading this passage. Like, I know how that feels to have your life cut short, to not be able to necessarily have any kind of generations or family come after you, at least in the biological sense. And so I feel like the, the eunuch would have had this automatically this kind of camaraderie with who is this person because there was some kind of emotional connection with him. And so he sees the water after hearing about the story of Jesus, about reading uh, in Isaiah about the servant of the Lord. And he sees this water, which would have been some kind of pool or puddle. And he says, there is some water. What is prohibiting me from being baptized? And this is a loaded question because of the fact that he's from Ethiopia and because of the fact that he is a eunuch, right? So the eunuch was a God seeker, as we saw before, right? He went to Jerusalem, probably to worship for one of the festivals. He was coming back. But the Mosaic law restricted his full inclusion into uh, the Jewish religion. It restricted that. No one, Deuteronomy 21, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Descendants from pagan and foreign nations were not permitted to enter the assembly of the Lord from the same passage in Deuteronomy. Now, the context of that is, hey, we don't want these pagan nations coming into the assembly of the Lord and introducing idolatrous worship, which, guess what, happened anyway. We also don't want um, our lineage to be broken off like the pagan nations around us do and castrate our young boys. We don't want to be like them. And so these were actually, at first, they were laws in order to protect the people of God. But there was also a restriction. There was also an exclusion from entering into the deeper fellowship of the community. Now, there was care for foreigners that Exodus and Deuteronomy talks about, and for strangers and for sojourners. But while there was this care, there was not a full immersion of those people into the community into the holy place. And so um, the eunuch is coming back from Jerusalem. And I don't know if you remember, but there was different levels of engagement at the temple in Jerusalem, right? There was different courts. And depending on how clean you were by the standards, you could enter into a certain uh, presence or a certain intimacy with the Lord. So even though this eunuch was a God-fearing person that he was trying to seek the Lord, the God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he would have had to be on the outskirts in the Gentile temple, in the Gentile court, that he was not able to enter in closer 
and closer and closer into the presence and into the house of the Lord. And because of his physical condition, he never would have been an actual convert to Judaism because of the fact that he was a eunuch, that his male organ, as the text says, was cut off and that those people were not able to enter into the assembly of the Lord. So he has this heart and he has this mind of seeking the Lord and yet there's this restriction. There's this exclusion. Yes, he can commune with the Lord, but there's not this inclusive into the middle, into the center part of the house of the Lord. And so when he's asking, is there anything prohibiting me from being baptized into the Christian faith? He's really asking that question. Because he's saying there's all of these other things previously that were set up that excluded me. But are you saying that by the work of the servant, of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, and what he has done to both cleanse me of my sin and to make it not about the law, but about um, uh, believing loyalty in him, that those other things that were set up for a purpose are no longer applied? Or how are they applied? Or, Or what part of the Old Testament do we take and what part of the New Testament does that cover over? This is really sincere to his heart about that. Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. It's interesting that he doesn't say the Ethiopian. He says the eunuch. Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. And so what is the good news of the, of the gospel in that situation? Can I be baptized, even though there was all these things excluding me and restricting me from entering into the, the Holy of Holies, even if it's not in the temple, but into the very presence of God? And Philip's like, yeah, because Christ has covered over all that stuff. That something in God's redemptive plan has now unfolded in such a significant way that the king is here, that the Messiah is here, and God showed who the Messiah was by raising him from the dead. That he not only went and died for our sins, but he was also raised to life so that we could follow his kingdom and his way of life. And that includes, yes, do you believe in him? Are you going to believe in him with a loyalty of actually following him? Not just a mental thing where like, yeah, I believe, if that means washing away of my sins. But are you going to receive that, that goodness of his? Where that washing of sins and his kingship is like, yes. I want to follow this Messiah. I want to follow this servant. I want to follow this Jesus. And so Philip baptizes him. One of the really cool things that Luke does in that latter part of the passage, if you remember at the end of Luke, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, very similar to this. So what do we got here? We have uh, disciples trying to figure things out. What's going on on the road to Emmaus? They're like, what's going on? We heard that Jesus died and maybe he's alive again. We don't know. What's the uh, Ethiopian eunuch doing? He's in his chariot being like, what's going on with this passage? There's some kind of questioning, some kind of answering. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the road to Emmaus. All of a sudden, Philip shows up uh, to the Ethiopian. And then there's this revelation, right? Jesus is talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus about uh, all the things that transpired and how the scriptures point to this. And what is Philip doing? Philip is explaining the text to the Ethiopian and how this points to Jesus. And then you have this really sweet point in both of them. One is over the breaking of bread. So let's say sacrament number one. 
the bread is broken and there's this revelation of, oh, that was Jesus that was with us. But what happens when that revelation happens? Jesus disappears randomly. (laughs) Same thing here, sacrament number two. The baptism happens, that there's this revelation in the heart of probably Philip also, but of the Ethiopian, of the eunuch. And what happens to Philip? He disappears. He's gone. He's out of there. So Luke is doing some uh, creative story wordplay here in the midst of this. And one has to wonder, you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 56 is coming up after the part where um, uh, the Ethiopian is seeing Jesus, the servant, being led to the slaughter and dying for the sins of Israel and Jerusalem and really of the whole world. But then Isaiah 56 comes along. I just wonder how the Ethiopian eunuch would respond to reading this now. Or did Philip kind of point ahead to this? So listen, put yourself in the mindset of being the Ethiopian, a eunuch, and listen. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Sabbath there is, uh, when you hear that say, the full immersion into the rhythm of God. That's what you should think about when you hear Sabbath in this. The full immersion into the rhythm of God. Verse 3. Let not the foreigner who joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. What, What do you mean he's a dry tree? Well, it's just a metaphor. He's not going to be able to have children. He's not going to be able to bear fruit, so to speak. But he's saying, let the one that joins himself, herself to the Lord, not say these things. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Right? Having a family, having sons and daughters, especially in that era, was insanely important. And yet, what is God's promise here? That the one that joins themselves to me, I will give them something better than the heritage of son and daughter. I will give them a monument in the midst of my house. That is probably speaking to the rich eunuchs who knew that they couldn't have children. In the court of the kings, there would be a monument actually set up with their name on it, almost as like a heritage piece, just like we have monuments around here. And so they didn't necessarily have a son or daughter to pass along Uh, their heritage, but there was this monument that was there. And God's saying that he will put a monument, metaphorically speaking, in his house and give this foreigner uh, eunuch something better than sons and daughters. It's crazy. I will give them an everlasting name, and then some wordplay here, that shall not be cut off. You catch that wordplay with eunuch and cut off? That's intentional. We shouldn't think like, oh, the writer of Isaiah was being funny. No, that's intentional. If you're a eunuch and you go through something like that and to hear those words spun in a different way, that you will not be cut off. That your heritage, that uh, the goodness that God has put in you is going to be remembered because you have joined yourself to the Lord. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain, 
and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar because there were certain altars in the Jewish tradition that a Gentile could bring an offering, but it wasn't on the Lord's offering. It was on a different altar. But no, you can bring your sacrifices of praise and I will receive them because you're part of the family. You're in. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So not only in Isaiah is this coming back to Jerusalem because of the exile, but God is saying through Isaiah, it's actually going to be a lot bigger than anybody can really imagine, including some of these redefined things that were good in the past uh, with the culture as far as eunuch and as far as uh, the foreigner, but that have now been changed. And I've always been hinting towards that. But at the revelation of Jesus Christ, things are different. And there is this uh, gathering in based off of the person joining themselves in believing loyalty to God. Not necessarily doing this, 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 and this. That is the first thing. And then the ethics and then the morality flow out from there. It's not that it starts with doing the right thing, quote unquote. But it starts with belief that then leads to following in loyalty the right thing. Because Jesus is saying, follow me. Let me give wisdom to you. Let me show you how to interact here and do this and to live here and to cast off sin here. And those things can be hard, incredibly hard. And all of us here struggle with those things. And yet it's the believing loyalty, faith in the servant, the one that died for us and the king that ultimately um, secures our uh, presence in the kingdom into his inner court, into his temple. So as we consider how to love God and how to love others in the, in the uh response to this passage. I mean, one is just this, that again, 98% of us here are Gentiles. We don't necessarily understand the fact of how Jewish the Jewish religion was because we're 2,000 years removed. And yet, yes, God always wanted to redeem the whole world. But the fact that we are included into the, the, the innermost part uh, to worship the Lord is something that we don't really think about or that doesn't really stir our heart because, well, of course, But if you think about the history of it, it's crazy and it's amazing that there's that kind of inclusion for us. And so we praise God and we thank God because of that. On the other end of the thing, how do we love people? I would offer you this thought to consider this. Who is the foreigner among you? And I don't mean necessarily somebody from another place or another race, but I mean somebody that is different than you, somebody that is different than us, And how are you exhibiting the kingdom of God within you towards them? Right? Just because somebody's a foreigner doesn't mean that their culture or their um, values are in line with God's. Just like just because we're here in domestic doesn't mean that our culture and our values are in line with God either. And so there might be some conflict there. I get that. But what is our actual heart posture? And what do we hear the gospel saying how we should act in truth and in grace towards our foreigners. Again, you can think, you can think uh, foreigners as far as race and nationality and all that, but I'm talking about who are those people that are different, that are strangers, that are almost alien to you. And how do you uh, present truth and grace to them? How do you practically disqualify from experiencing the truth and kindness of God in you? Who, who do you do that to? Who do you practically disqualify? Those of high status? those of low status, those from this church or that denomination, those Republicans or those Democrats 
or those who think the political thing is a ridiculous endeavor? Who do you practically disqualify? Those liberal feminists or those conservative chauvinists? Those that we will never meet in the Philippines on the other side of the world? Or what about do we practically disqualify our family and our friends and those that we are closest to from actually experiencing the truth and kindness of the Lord in us towards them? And so all of us have biases. All of us have uh, foreigners that we don't like or these qualifications that we want to make up in our mind. The question is, what does God say? What does God say? And are we willing to be uh, challenged in what we think? Are we willing to be challenged in what we think is right or wrong? And are we willing to be in community as we walk through those challenges and not just completely separate from one another like the Reformation? The gospel is inclusive. Now, let's get to the kingdom of God and the exclusive nature of the kingdom of God. So, second question. When you hear the word exclusive, what first comes to mind? In what context would you consider being exclusive a positive thing? In what context would you consider it a negative trait? You have two minutes. Chit-chat. We'll be doing a couple passages from, or a couple verses from 1 Corinthians 6. One of the other quotes on the back. Exclusion from the kingdom is largely a self-imposed implication of dispositions and acts which persistently contradict Christian identity as persons in whom God's reign becomes representative. So what it's saying here, um, in a nutshell, to some degree, is that if, if I am excluded from the kingdom of God, it's by my choice. It's by e- either a, persist, uh, a self-imposed implication uh, Implications of dispositions, ways that I think, or acts that I persistently do. So there's, there's this responsibility on our end also that when we hear the gospel, that we're actually turning towards the gospel. That we are repenting from whatever it is and walking in that. And that repentance, folks, isn't a one-time thing. Like there might be an initial uh, like coming to faith moment, but then... If we get locked into thinking that a life of repentance is just, uh, how old am I now? Uh, 19, 18, 18 in Christian years. That that act of repentance was only 18 years ago and I don't need to repent of anything else since then. I have some problems. And I would, I would, I would suggest that so do you if, if you're thinking that way. But it can often, well, I'm good. I remember, uh, this is a rabbit trail. So there's a lot of baggage with the story. Don't ask me about it. But after I came to faith, I called my girlfriend up, my ex-girlfriend up at the time. I remember sitting in the lawn of my parents' uh, property, telling her about that I, uh, I was a Christian now, I was, following, I was following Jesus. And I remember saying those words. I was just like, hey, like, should we consider getting back together now? Because I have Jesus, so that's all good. So now that I have that, um, everything's okay, and so let's continue life as it was. And... Th- Thank the Lord Almighty that she had enough wisdom to say, uh-uh, I'm not playing that game. But again, we can think that there was this thing that happened, then, okay, well, everything's okay. It's good. There's nothing that needs to be worked on. The process of sanctification and understanding both an intimacy and practical uh, ethics, that's whatever I do now is fine. No, that's not the case. 
And so the life of a Christian is one of worship, and also part of that worship is one of repentance and turning uh, towards God's definitions rather than our own definitions. So up here on the screen, this is a a word cloud, a list of either, um, I don't want to say people, but either of people or of characteristics throughout the New Testament that will not inherit the kingdom of God. That the text says this. And there's four different places it says these things. One's in uh, 1 Corinthians, which is this one. One is in Ephesians, one is in Revelation, and one is in uh, Galatians. You know, some of these are the works of the flesh that you might be a little bit more familiar with. But in all of them, there is this phrase that these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These things are excluded from the kingdom of God. And so we should take them seriously. Um, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to start. So uh, this list here, let's just start with the first. The first. So we're in, uh, Paul is in the midst of talking to the church at Corinth about sexual issues, about idolatry issues, about all kinds of issues. For us that think we want to get back to the New Testament church and be like them, 1 Corinthians says, no, you don't. They were just as messed up as we can be today. And especially, think about it. Again, going to the Gentile nations, this was first-generation Christianity. Everything they knew prior to this was pagan. There wasn't necessarily this Jewish ethic um, that was instilled in them. And so when they came to Christ, there was a lot of letting go. There was a lot of leaving behind. Whereas maybe some of us uh, in America have had some kind of Christian ethic, which again doesn't translate to salvation— but makes it almost easier to understand when we come to Christ uh, what the values are because it's kind of in our background. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily be the case. So Paul is addressing here lawsuits among believers. Why are you even uh, wronging each other? You should be wise enough. Don't you know that you're going to be judging uh, things in the future when the new heaven and the new earth comes? You need to figure out how to do this because you're going to be doing this in the future. And then you have this other sexual immorality stuff that's going on. You're lying. You're not considering one another. That's kind of the back the background. And then so here in uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So there's this exclusion here. And not necessarily for bad reasons. And then he goes on to say, do not be deceived. So if you ever hear or ever read something that says, do not be deceived, that means watch out. You might, what I'm about to say, you might try to find a loophole for. That doesn't mean like um, we put our baggage and stuff on that. It just means be sober-minded, right? Do not be deceived in this. You might be trying to find a loophole in order to do those former things that you used to do. Do not be deceived in the midst of that. Um, it's also important to be sober-minded when we hear this list of things. As one commentator puts it, uh, we need to realize the internal grammar of the Greek. What does that mean? Let me tell you. It means Paul is not describing the qualifications required for an entrance examination, right? This isn't if you do or don't do these things, then you're in. That's not, that's not, let's say, instead of internal grammar, that's not the heart of the passage. That's not the heart of the passage. He is comparing familiar actions which can find no place in God's reign for the welfare of all. So he's comparing those familiar actions with those qualities in which disciples of Christ need to be transformed if they belong authentically to God's new creation in Christ. 
So again, this isn't if you do this or don't do this, that's, not the, that's the entrance exam. Again, we are saved by a grace through faith, a believing loyalty. But then as that happens and the Holy Spirit comes into us, there's this openness to, well, what do you say, God? What is the Spirit convicting me of in my life, about how I talk about others, about how I am with my money, about my sex life, all of it. Sabbath, full immersion into the rhythm of God, right? Jesus says um, multiple times as he's calling disciples, you know, you might want to count the cost before you build this temple or this tower. What Christ provides for us is exceedingly better than anything we can provide for ourselves. That doesn't mean that in the process there's not some pain and some hurt and some what are you talking about in saying this. There's a process in it. So, uh, the, first, the first couple. So, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, sexually immoral there is pornos. Uh, the, ver- the noun form of por- pornonia, which, what does that sound like? Por- porn, pornography, right. So, usually that takes um, a general sexual ethic. But when it's combined with other sexual ethics it tends to be um, more directed to, towards those that are not married, okay? So in this case, I would present that the translation of that, what Paul is going for is that uh, do not be sexually immoral. And he's kind of saying, those of you who are single, don't be sleeping around. Don't be, you know, dilly-dallying with things you shouldn't dilly-dally with. Don't be doing this or that or the other thing, okay? That you have, there is a sexual ethic for the single people. That's not just, well, I'm not married, so I can do whatever, because I'm not married. No, he's, he's saying no to that. And then two um, items uh, after that, there's adulterers. So to be an adulterer, you actually need to be in a covenant connection with somebody. So Paul is saying here, do not be sexually immoral, you single people. Do not be sexually immoral, you married people either. So he's, he's kind of focusing in on both of them. Whatever it is, whether you're married or not, you need to flee from sexual immorality. You need to be faithful which that word faithful is interesting because what's the word that's between sexual immorality and adultery there? Idolatry. So of course idolatry is worshiping other gods, but think of it in the terms of being sandwiched in between there. Don't be unfaithful. Don't be unfaithful to your God. Don't be unfaithful to your own body. Do not be unfaithful to your spouse. And so it's a really cool how uh, Paul puts that together there. Next. Uh, those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, this is actually two terms. So depending on your Bible and your translation, you might just have what the ESV says, men who practice homosexuality. This is two terms. One is uh, malakas, which means in the uh, first century Greco-Roman time, there was uh, more defined partners to some degree. This would have been the passive partner. This would have been the younger partner in the relationship saying, um, no, this, isn't, this is not okay. And this is where um, this portion of the text kind of hints at, but not in totality, to uh, pedestry. Is that my saying that right? Uh, pedestry. Is that how I say that word? Does everybody know what word I'm saying? Pedophilia. Okay, I'll say it that way. There's another word of, of saying that. Because of the, one of the partners being a lot younger than uh, one of the other partners. So that's the one word. And then the second part is uh, this really interesting word that's kind of a made-up word but not a made-up word. It's uh, arsene okoitas. Arsene okoitas. 
and this was the lead or the active partner in the homosexual relationship. The interesting thing about this, it's a Greek and Hebrew hybrid that uh, Paul didn't make it up, but it's not used a lot in the culture. But what it does do is that it links back all the way to Leviticus and the term that's used there for homosexuality. And so Paul is linking the, the Greek with the Hebrew and linking it back to that, the verse in Leviticus that says, um, men should not lay with men as they lay with women. Women should not lay with women as they lay, lay, lie with men. And so here, just as um, before, they were going towards heterosexual relationships. It was saying, um, you know, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, this, um, you can't be sexually immoral if you're single. If you're in a heterosexual relationship as a married person, you can't be sexually immoral as that person. There is no practicing, uh, according to the scriptures, of homosexual practice that has ever been um, okay. Now, that being said, let me take uh, a point of uh, pastor's note, is that in the midst of the talk with the LGBT community, in the midst of the talk of trying to uh, minister and welcome in those that are seeking Jesus that are gay, we need to walk in wisdom in all of those things. And as a church, I would um, encourage you to not stereotype um, either Christians, other Christians, or not stereotype uh, people from the gay community where they have same-sex attraction. Those things are very deep. And it's something that here at Cornerstone, among the leadership, we would welcome people that are struggling with same-sex attraction here in order to see Jesus. And we want to be with people um, as our kids grow up and as uh, other family members grow up, and that uh, people that are in our lives that are gay, and we don't know what to do with that. What do we do with that? All I know is what the scripture says, but we have to walk in wisdom with these things. Not just necessarily making a statement about something, but actually putting ourselves into the places where we can love and speak truth amongst everybody, and not just single out this other quote-unquote sin in order to have that some kind of pedestal or some kind of thing that we're railing against. We need to be walking in wisdom as we address all of these things amongst our community, not just the hot potato things that are going on. So wisdom is key for now, especially in the um, trying to uh, minister to one another, especially with those that don't feel welcomed in church, that have same-sex attraction, or that are gay. So let us be a people that hold to what the scripture says, interpret it rightly, but that are also walking in grace, truth and grace together with one another about our sexual junk. I'm not saying I'm going to come up here and tell you all the sexual stuff that I struggle with, but about our sexual junk as, as well as our communities. Are we willing to be a community like that, right? That's kind of like, because sex is so intimate, right? Across the board, no matter what. So how can we walk in wisdom in those things? That's my rabbit trail. Back to the text. So next, um, do you not know that uh, those who will not inherit the kingdom of God are thieves, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, uh, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God? So again, he's saying this twice. This list will not inherit the kingdom of God. These things are excluded from the kingdom of God. And so he says this twice. So now in this list, we have thieves. Th- those are, they are those that steal by force as compared to swindlers. Swindlers are those who steal by manipulation, right? So you can steal in multiple ways. I could be really um, physically um, polite towards Josh, but I could swindle him with my words and manipulate him with my words and steal things from him in that way. And so Paul is saying, like, there's this 
physical force of stealing things, but there's also how do we use our mouths and our heart and our brain to swindle things from people? How are we greedy in the midst of that? There are drunkards and those who are drink too much, um, which is interesting with this, uh, with the drunken peasant series, because one of the other verses uh, to consider with the drunken peasant is do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we both want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be sober-minded. And as we're filled with the Holy Spirit and sober-minded, we can kind of walk together in this muddled world that's so confusing. All of these things together, oh, sorry, and then the revilers are those that are verbally abusive. So again, Paul's not just talking about physical violence or stuff like that. He's talking about both our actions and the way we speak to one another. Most people here probably know what it's like to be verbally abused on some account. You know, maybe not to an nth degree. But you also know that that is an actual offense, right? When you are verbally abused or yelled at or things are turned back on you. And that stuff cannot be within the kingdom of God. So again, he says, um, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor the verbally abusive, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then the reason I picked this list out of the five other lists is because of the next verse, which I love. It's awesome. And as much stuff as you might be feeling now about yourself or your friends or whatever, um, the next verse is like a breath of air um, because it gives us so much hope in the gospel. So what what does Paul say here? And such were some of you. I do not think this list is some arbitrary list where it's like, I'm going to list these random things and see what sticks. He is talking to a local church body, a local regional church body. He knows the sins, especially because of what he says in chapter 5 earlier. And so there's this thing here where everything that he's listing there, he's like, oh, I'm not saying this, but Jason, he struggled with that thing. Fred came from there. Bethany, you know where she came from. Justin, we're not even going to talk about all the screwed up stuff in Justin's life. But these weren't things that were just out there in the mind. These, this wasn't just a, a, a list of, oh, these words sound good together. What I take from the text is that these were actual uh, things that people were doing in their former life. And now they're being sanctified. Meaning that they have to let them go, but it's not just going to be like an easy, like, oh, I'm just going to toss that to the side. Sometimes things are like that. When you come to Christ, there's certain things that are broken off. Other times, it's a long process. But there's this continual seeking of the Lord and seeking of his ways and not our own ways as far as what he says, how we should live in believing loyalty towards him. And so such were some of you, were, past, meaning that you're not that anymore. These identities, even if you're struggling and doing some of these things, they are not actually who you are in Christ because you're a new creation in Christ. And you were some of these, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That term there, and you were uh, washed, it could be uh, talking about sanctification in a different way. Another way you could translate that is that you washed yourselves, meaning that you participated in the waters of baptism, meaning you heard the call of Christ. And you chose to follow. Because in the Christian life, it's not like this necessarily, okay, 
now uh, you're, to some degree it is, but okay, this happens and then this happens and this happens. There's all of these things about being justified and sanctified and about coming to know the Lord that are a lot messier than that. But at some point, I think what Paul's saying, because he baptized some of those people, not all of them, because Apollos and somebody else did, was that you chose to follow Jesus. And this is what following Jesus looks like. And don't forget that in following Jesus, you are washed from these things, that you are justified, that you are brought in. And that former way of life, that old creation, is no longer the new creation. And so remember your identity, that you were these things, but now you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been um, uh, justified because of the Lord Jesus and because of the Spirit in us. Two notes to keep in mind uh, in the context of what Paul is talking about. One, the people that were sinning, not singing, singing isn't usually a crime, uh, sinning, uh, people that were sinning were boasting about their sin. Okay, that's the context of, of chapter 5. He calls uh, the church arrogant because there's the stuff going on and people are actually boasting about, man, you know, Gene's sleeping with my wife. Isn't that cool how this grace thing works? They're boasting about that kind of stuff. So there's this idea of boasting of this sin. So um, there's a difference in the process of weeding out sin. Gene is not sleeping with my wife, just to make sure that's clear. Okay, it's true. Um, so there's a difference in the process of weeding out these former passions and these former ways of life um, within the community as compared to boasting about your sin. Paul says earlier, what is the thing we're supposed to boast about? The Lord himself. Not about the fact that we can do whatever we want because we're justified and cleansed. You're missing the point in that. So it's not the same as uh, someone who is earnestly wrestling with a former way of life, probably even feeling a sense of shame in the midst of it, and who knows that it's not godly, and yet these familiar patterns um, are hard and even painful to break at times. So that's the first consideration in the midst of this exclusion. Second one is, remember that Paul is addressing Christians. Paul is addressing Christians and saying that these things cannot be part of you because you are a new creation. It doesn't line up with your identity any longer. He doesn't, he's not addressing unbelievers who are doing these things. In fact, in a verse, uh, in chapter five somewhere, he actually says, when I talked to you about these things, I wasn't meaning uh, the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, because if that was the case, you would need to go completely out of the world. You wouldn't be able to interact with anybody. So he's addressing Christians here. And I say this because it's easy for the church to try to get someone to change their morality or have a Christian ethic before they actually have faith and a believing loyalty in Jesus. And so we spend all of this energy trying to get people to do this or do that rather than telling them the story of God's love through Jesus Christ. We need to put our energy where it belongs. Yes, in discipleship, there is that ethic. You know, me meeting with Steve and us sharing about our lives and me being like, hey, Steve, I am wrestling with this with Naomi or uh, this with whatever and him being able to um, give the word of the Lord back to me to remind me who I am and what I'm called to. That's important and that's part of discipleship. But also remember that we are first and foremost talking about Jesus and the story of God's redemption, not about a morality or an ethical way of living, which is part of it. I get it. First things first. First things first. So we want to be able to put our energy into there. So verse 11, as I already said, um, the big thing here, team, you guys can come back up. Um, 
is what, the, what this all hints to is the fact that in really practical and serious claims, that being in a relationship with God, so being in his kingdom, being a servant of King Jesus, is better and more fulfilling than our take on sex or power or possessions. Like that's kind of the underlying part. So no matter how much you like sex, no matter how much you like swindling people, no matter how much you like the power that is maybe in good ways or in bad ways, that nothing compares to that intimacy with Christ and being within his kingdom. And all of those things can actually be let go of and left behind because God has something better for us in himself. Does that make sense? So that it doesn't specifically say that, but that's like the underlying uh, 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 kind of feel of it. That these things that we just listed, yeah, it's going to be hard to not be in your former passion uh, life that you just did whatever you want. Walk with the church. Walk with community. Let's try to figure this out. Let's try to figure out where we're being legalistic about things. Let's try to figure out where we're telling people, do whatever you want because I don't want to actually talk about it. But let's do that in community by the guidance of God's spirit and by his word in the scripture. Come and be part of this. But this thing, all of these other things, whatever it is, even family, being in the kingdom of God and following him is better than family. I'm not telling you to leave your family, but do you understand what I'm saying? As First Peter says, you need to sanctify the Lord Jesus in your hearts. Sanctify, set him apart. Meaning it's not um, even the chain of relationships is great, but how uh, First Peter would say, it's not God and then family and then um, my kids or whatever, God, Naomi, kids. It's actually you take this thing that is the Lord Jesus and you put it in a completely different space and a completely different category that actually surrounds all of this because it shouldn't even have the option to be moved up and down in this list. Now, practically, does it? Yeah, it does. But set apart the Lord Jesus in your hearts. Set him apart for that. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So being sober-minded in the context of today is about seeing clearly that God is the king, and it is his kingdom, it is his throne, and that so we don't ultimately get to decide who's in or out. He is the king, he is the gatekeeper, he is the one that is calling And so we might have certain uh, things against foreigners, quote-unquote, in our lives. But what does God say? We might have certain things that we think we should be able to do this thing because that's how we get by or that's what we enjoy. The question is, what does the king say? How is he set apart in our lives? And now the call of faith is to actually believe, to believe that God's kingdom is uncomparable to how you would run your kingdom to actually believe it is uncomparable as to how we or I would run our kingdom. This king was willing to die for us because of the love that he had since the beginning of it all and was willing to become an outsider in order to pave the way for us to enter into his kingdom and come before his throne of grace. We know what kind of God and what kind of king Jesus is because of what he did for us first. That while we were still sinners, we didn't get cleaned up, And then, okay, now I'm ready. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's receive that and also remind and offer that to the people that are here and the people that are in our world. That Christ died for you even though you're still in sin. 
and then we tell them the story and we call them into this believing loyalty, this faith in Jesus Christ, and then go from there. So Joy is going to be serving communion with Holly. Is that correct? Okay, just didn't want to like say somebody's going to do it. They'll be back in the sukkah. Um, um, and as you go there, remember how the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God in its fullness is still yet to come, sure, but it is here. And remember that it's a throne of grace that we enter uh, and we go up before as we go to this communion table. Let's pray, and then the team will lead us in worship. God, thank you for being um, uh, a good king, a good God, one that um, calls us to himself by first initiating the love, by first initiating um, the grace, by even first initiating the truth in our lives, God. May we be people that see and respond to the grace that is in Jesus Christ. May we be people that set our hope fully on Jesus and the grace that is to be revealed, God. And these other things that we want to exclude people from certain things, from kindness or from truth, because if we were honest, we think we're better than them and we think that they're stupid and we don't understand how any of those things work. Help us to think about it differently. Help us to ask better questions. Help us to uh, not have a heart that is hard towards anything that is different from us, but help us have your heart that is willing to bring uh, people in to walk and to share uh, your story with them, God. And also, God, we thank you for the fact that you don't just call us and then let us go, but you call us and you forgive us, and you also show us a better way of life. Help us to believe that what you say is a better way of life actually is a better way of life. And may you receive honor and glory and praise because of that, because of the way that we live our lives, because of the worship we extend to you, because of the kindness uh, and the truth we extend to one another. Um, Yeah, and give us wisdom, God. Jesus, help us, the church, and individuals to be wise in the season of life. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your body. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The communion table is open.